The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They're not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on the lab report, Dr. Taylor Sittler. Head of research at Levels. And an all-around cool guy. Yeah, he's good. Like most of those Levels right? people. They are. The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. I was just talking to Doobie, and she saw three black snakes in her yard. I saw one. There was one on my house. What? I literally was in the garage. I what? turned around. There was a face with a tongue sticking out. Oh, my out. God. Hello. Hi, Michael Chapman. How are you I'm today? I'm great, Patty Devers. How are you, ma'am? I, I'm good, and I'm a little confused. Like, the snake was on your house, like, on the roof, or it just, was, like, slapped against the side <laughs> of your house? No, I don't it, get was, it. it was in between, like, you know, the, the gap between the bricks. There was a black snake who was trying to get through there. I think it was after there's a... Uh, kind of a little birdhouse, and I think maybe there's Yikes. a nest with some eggs in there. I think he was after that, but he was like went across the top of the garage. <laughs> so it's pretty wild. Out. Anyway, this is a podcast. It's mm-hmm. called the Lab Report. It's brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, and thank you to Genova for all the support. Um, and uh, what the, it's a little show, you know, we talk about things about? like functional medicine, specialty lab mm-hmm. testing, integrative therapeutics, huh. and today we're going to talk about glucose monitoring CGMs. That's fascinating and if you listen to this podcast and you are also well, into you currently CGM, are listening and, to it and you so. happen to love today's episode mm-hmm. maybe you could go to itunes or spotify perhaps subscribe rate review leave yeah. us a star some feedback we like that you know speaking of feedback if you have additional feedback like all that feedback you just gave is not enough and you need Whoa. to give more feedback you can send the feedback <laughs> to podcast at gdx.net now i know why i always say feedback at gdx uh, it's not that no it's, it's podcast at gdx.net that's our email address and you can also follow mm-hmm. us on social media at genova diagnostics instagram facebook stuff like that do the following become a follower <laughs> what are you on about good question oliver what are we on about well speaking of following we follow pretty closely all the happenings over at Levels, a continuous glucose monitoring company. I would say we follow them intensely closely. We do. Yeah. And many of us here at Genova wear CGMs. And so it's always exciting to get to talk to anyone on their team. Yes. And uh, today is no exception. It is Dr. Taylor Sittler, um, and he is in charge of research and development over at Levels. And so we're going to have a pretty fun conversation. He's got an interesting background, interesting tale, and um, man, just a tremendous way to look at some of these root causes and what they're trying to do at Levels to, um, you know, really address these root causes in a real-time biofeedback way. So uh, super cool conversation, super cool guy. I can't wait to talk to him. Oh, well, I couldn't agree more. Michael. Yes, Patty. I'm kind of fangirling out a little bit. You know we love levels. We love them so much. And you know I love pathologists. I did not know that, but I know that now. We we have this Dr. Taylor Sittler. So excited. And for those of you who don't know Dr. Sittler, Dr. Taylor Sittler is the head of research at Levels, a continuous glucose monitoring company, a physician and entrepreneur. His career has focused on personalizing medicine, starting companies in genetics and women's health, including co-founding Color Health, where he was the chief science officer. 
Prior to that, he completed his residency in clinical pathology at UCSF and started a genetics research group in the computer science department at UC Berkeley with David Patterson. Taylor received a Howard Hughes medical training grant and scholarship during medical school at the University of Massachusetts and UCSD. He has published papers on pathogen detection and characterization, genetic sequence analysis and algorithms, and several other topics related to systems biology. He is an avid skier and hiker and enjoys all things outdoors, including coming on the lab reports. <laughs> and with that, welcome, ah, Dr. Singer. Yes. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being uh, here. Um, thank you for having me. No, it's great to be here. Absolutely. Uh, I'm excited to talk with you all today. Yeah, great. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, for there might be a couple people out there at this mm. point who don't know levels. I'm sure know. everyone else does. Of course. Um, but I'm wondering about your origin story a little bit and how you got involved with levels and just tell us about kind of your role over there and the work that levels is doing. Sure. So uh, I had, I had, uh, you know, as I like to say, I bumped into levels early on uh, as they were kind of, you know, raising money, going through their first round of financing and was really taken with, Josh and Sam's approach. And um, Sam immediately connected me to Casey. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time, I was uh, actually running a separate company uh, in women's health, uh, looking at hormones and trying to help essentially provide a missing medical service to women who are going through menopause, because this is a, uh, it's a, it's a time that is really important for setting women up for the second half of life. And it, OBs don't like to deal with it primary care docs don't like to deal with it. It's it's like this hot potato that gets passed between different doctors. And so Mm -hmm. we were trying to start some of these medical services and make them available uh, virtually. Um, uh, Casey's work and our work, you know, I I thought we we had the the opportunity to do a really great collaboration because um, there's a lot of evidence that these hormonal shifts that women go through have a big impact on glucose. Mm -hmm. And so we had, we had thought about doing some studies together. Um, we, you know, looked at a few different avenues, and ultimately, that that startup didn't end up working out. But I kept being interested in hormones, hormone monitoring, things like that, and um, so uh, I kept talking with Casey and with Josh and with Sam. And uh, as last summer, it became clear that the company wanted to move in a direction of measuring more than just glucose mm-hmm. over time. And it's not yet clear how we're going to do that, you know, who we would partner with to enable those things. But I thought, you know, this is something, it's definitely an ongoing interest of mine that, I'm, that I've been pursuing. And uh, if it's something that they want to do, let, let's do this together rather than doing this individually. And so, um, you know, in the basically late in the fall or, or you know, early this year is when I um, came on as the head of research to help them expand into a broader service, um, think about how to enable research, and to um, to really kind of supercharge that effort in the company, um, because they're, they're already doing so many things uh, so well. Mm-hmm. So it's like, yeah. it's been, it's been really fun to see how the team continues to expand and continues to sort of improve um, how they're offering uh, the current service. And um, it's exciting to think about where we're going to be able to go in the future. Love it. Cool. Love it. Yeah. Dr. Casey Means, friend of the show. 
and friend Think, of ours. Yeah, yes. for sure. And everything that happens over at Levels We Love, I mean, this glucose variability is becoming such a hot topic. But as it relates during the pandemic, we know that the patients whose outcomes were not great were those with metabolic dysfunction. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about the scope of this metabolic crisis and why we should care? Yeah, well, maybe maybe I'll start with the pandemic as sort of a a micro and then we can zoom out to this crisis that's Mm -hmm. been um, building for, I don't know, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, there, there were sort of two interesting, uh, data points around, uh, COVID. One is that, um, folks with, um, glucose impairment, some form of diabetes, uh, seem to be at higher risk for, uh, lethal COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, it's the, the mechanisms there still aren't hundred percent clear. But the, um, the, the correlation is definitely there. And I think uh, what we're seeing is, I mean, the, the easiest way to explain it, maybe the easiest correlation to make, is uh, between modified glucose levels and inflammation. And what we're seeing is that the, you know, having, um, usually by the time you get to uh, altered glucose tolerance and um you have glucose spikes into the 150s and the 200s, that's, you know, you've been sort of pounding on your metabolism for years. And typically that increase in sugar that you see um, and the, the, the tissues insulin uh, resistance is linked to uh, inflammation that happens in the body. And, and in particular, what we're seeing is there's a, a shift toward, um, I mean, one one traditional way that we've broken these two arms down is TH1 and TH2 responses. Mm -hmm. Um, Broadly speaking, they're, you know, responses to sort of uh, external pathogens and and puncture wounds and things like Mm -hmm. that, um, which you would, you might typically sustain in a fight versus the internal monitoring, like, you know, natural killer cells that are, you know, making sure that you don't get cancer and things like that. And, And I think the altered glucose metabolism for a couple of reasons that aren't completely clear end up being linked to uh, a move away from this sort of uh, self-monitoring, mm-hmm. and and so the um, effectively you're reducing the body's ability to mount uh, a, a good response um, when you get COVID, mm-hmm. um, and you know I'll, I'll, I may have to get back to you with some materials afterwards because I don't there were a few mechanisms that were proposed but it's really interesting to see that when the body gets deregulated in this way right when you when you start to see signs that the signaling cascades uh, related to metabolism are off that you know there are a bunch of other uh, underlying there's a bunch of other under, underlying pathology that's already there as well yeah. and I think that's really what it comes down to is that folks who um, whether it's because of the, you know, increased glycation that we see in the body, or it's because of the shift in the immune system that uh, folks with prediabetes and diabetes have a harder time mounting an effective immune response. And that leads to problems. Mm-hmm. Another interesting um, sort of, you know, tidbit here is that um, in a bunch of different emergency rooms, you're, you're seeing folks start to use uh, cortisol as a marker of the severity of disease. And what you find is with an elevate, if, if folks come up, come to the ER with an elevated cortisol, their chance of dying of COVID is up by 50 to hundred percent. And so there are these clear signs in the body that 
uh, someone is or is not able to mount an effective immune response and that they're at risk. And I think that that really is, um, that's something that we'll come back to later in the program, but I think that's, that's sort of a nugget to take away. Right. Um, and then if we sort of zoom out more broadly, I mean, with the number of people with diabetes and prediabetes, you're talking about one in three Americans, um, you know, half of them uh, are going to have diabetes within uh, 10 years. And, you know, two thirds of them actually don't know that there's a problem. So there's this huge issue that um, people are unaware of that puts them at risk for a number of different diseases. And that that, that risk has been building for a long time. Um, the the way that I, uh, I mean, I first encountered this issue back in medical school um, when it was called the obesity epidemic. Mm. And I think the CDC called it that because that would allow them to step in and help mm -hmm. um, rather than leaving it up to the states, which is where medicine is normally regulated. Mm -hmm. And uh, Michael Pollan actually had a great way of describing this in, in Omnivore's Dilemma, which was already back in 2006, where he talks about the... Um, he talks about the alcohol epidemic in the U.S. in the 19th century and mm. compares it to the obesity epidemic. Now, this is a time when um, employers were actually expected to provide spirits for their employees. What? And they were, yeah, no, they, they like, you were expected. <laughs> Born in the wrong like, century, <laughs> Patty. Yes, <I> <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth, Michael Chapman. <laughs> right? Instead of, instead of the, the, you know, the artist, the artisanal yogurt and the, you know, five different types of flavored water. It was like hard alcohol. <laughs> and, you know, people were drinking at breakfast, lunch, and dinner with predictably horrible results on, you know, communities and family life and things like that. And, yeah. you know, it, it makes you understand prohibition in a different light mm -hmm. when, you, when you think about that. And I think his point is that the obesity epidemic is just as lethal. It's just as disruptive and lethal an epidemic as the alcohol epidemic it's just much more silent yeah um and it's important to think about it that way and i think it's it's sort of you know people have been talking about this for a long time but it it, it for some reason it just has not been able to hit the public radar mm. um the the other interesting tidbit that that he brings up that i like to mention is that it has some of the same origins so the the um metabolic health crisis has some of the same origins as, as the alcohol epidemic. And, and that is overproduction. In the 19th century, it was overproduction of corn, which led to tons and tons of uh, whiskey, corn whiskey, basically. Um, and that that's what gave rise to all of this. In the 20th century, it's the fractionation of corn and overproduction of some of the other processed foods that lead to these calorically intense uh, foods that almost all of us eat. I mean, it, escaping high fructose corn syrup these days is almost impossible, mm -hmm. right? Sure. Um, so it's that oversupply. Um, the I think the other two things that have really led to the metabolic health crisis are um, we've engineered exercise and movement out of our daily life um, for efficiency and comfort. And we've also managed to ratchet up the chronic stress that everybody feels. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is, you know, loneliness, but some of that I think is just we've, um, the way that we've designed modern life and the, the speed of it makes it very stressful. And when those things come together, over time, you overwhelm the body's systems and the, these really um, amazing signaling cascades that enable you to eat and sleep and, and work effectively.
Mm-hmm. How's said. that for unpacking an it's ideology, like, well, Patty? That well was pretty said. amazing. Well um, <clears throat> and it brings up a couple questions, and I really like how you, you know, you sort of talked a little bit about the actual. Um, the you know the molecular aspects related to inflammation and the and the cascades there, but you kind of rolled it up into this idea of metabolic, uh, you know, metabolic dysfunction causing just general inflammation, right? And so it made me think about what you said about cortisol, um, because I I think of cortisone being produced by adipocytes and how that could tell you a little bit about general inflammation in the body. So that connection between cortisol, what that they were finding as it related to outcomes in COVID, do you think that was more with respect to inflammation and obesity or with respect to stress or both? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the, um, the cortisol level specifically is at the moment that you walk into the emergency department, it's giving you a sense of the body's overall stress level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that, that elevated stress could be related to difficulty breathing. Um, It can be related to a number of different things, but it basically is telling you that the body is having a really hard time dealing with this particular disease. Um, And that, you know, that translates into uh, ability to recover from COVID. Effectively, what what COVID does um, in the subset of people that it um, that that it kills is it overwhelms the uh, the immune response. What it it's what what it's doing is triggering an immune response in the body that um, really causes the body to attack itself. Yeah, right? mm-hmm. yeah, so got you, it. You yeah. And, and so I think the cortisol in this case is really a measure of that. I see. I um, was thinking there was a baseline cortisol prior to getting COVID that they were mm. they were doing it that way, that that was the structure of the design rather than oh, got upon it. entry of the no, hospital. No, it's, it's at the time got they it. show up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes yeah, sense. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing is the concept of this metabolic resiliency um, you, it is getting more attention these days. You know, you start to hear terms like metabolic flexibility and all these aspects coming out a little bit more with the help of people like yourself and Dr. Mm-hmm. Casey Means, Dom mm-hmm. Diagostino, all those people who are contributing so much to this. But how do you kind of define, at the end of the day, metabolic resiliency in this term? Yeah, well, I um, resilience to me is actually a concept that um, includes metabolism but isn't limited to it. it's it's really more of a um, it's more of a global phenomenon, mm-hmm. and it has some of its roots in allostasis. If you've um, you know if you've looked into allostasis at all, basically the body has this incredibly sophisticated and um, complex supply chain management system that it uses, and you know the the what we see in metabolism is just the tip of that iceberg, where you know as soon as you smell or taste food, your body is preparing to move that glucose into the cells, right? It's, it's getting the digestive system revved up. It's uh, planning for the liver to be able to process it, the um, adipocytes and the um, muscle to be able to handle the incoming energy. And this, this incredibly complex signaling cascade um, is working for you to handle all of the things that you're about to take in. Right. Your body is this incredible prediction machine. And we can tell a lot by how well your body prepares for food, as well as how well it recovers after a big, say, glucose load, mm-hmm. right? As mm-hmm. in an oral glucose tolerance test, mm-hmm. which is something that you know the medical industry uses to, to measure your uh, ability to handle it. So I think when you're thinking about both preparation and recovery, um, 
you can tell a lot about how healthy someone is by how well the body supply chain management system is functioning, right? The metabolism involves this complex signaling cascade. And, you know, as we were talking about before, if your sugar is spiking up high or your insulin is off the chart, you're probably pre-diabetic and the signaling cascade is off. There's a lot of information there that's related to disease. And so a person's resilience, as we define it, is their ability to handle changes in demand. It's their body's ability to handle all the things that you throw at yourself. And um, better resilience enables you to essentially have lower um, glucose variability, um, lower insulin variability, better uh, sensitivity in your muscles, et cetera. Um, and, and I think that's really the, the idea behind resilience is that by measuring um, how your body responds to changes in demand, um, we're going to be able to tell you a lot about how to avoid disease. Um, and in the levels context, I think coupling that testing, which is you're gonna see via these, what I call feedback metrics, glucose, cortisol, other things that respond pretty quickly. Um, it helps you understand how your behaviors are impacting your health. And that's really what's so important. It gives you this mirror that tells you, hey, you know, I'm actually not that resilient in this particular way maybe I need to focus a little bit more on um, uh, making in improving my resilience, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm, and, and, and I think that's the, that's the goal here is to, to try to identify this concept that um, by looking at your body signaling cascade in both the lead up as well as the recovery from different events, um, you can tell a lot about health. And the best example that we have of this so far is uh, heart rate variability, which is you know, already convincingly linked to a number of different physical activities. Mm -hmm. And we know that the more your heart rate responds to activities that you begin to undertake or that you're recovering from, um, the healthier that you are. Yeah. Yeah, it's it. it's so fascinating too that at its core the these concepts of variability are so important to the body, right? Because yeah. with heart rate variability, mm -hmm. it's the it's the ability to handle sympathetic and parasympathetic and bounce between them. And so here it's the ability to handle insulin and glucagon and really expose the variability between those two things. It's fascinating well, how that's set up. I was, was kind of struck by, you know, so we know that metabolic resilience is important. And then how do you measure it? And it's coming back to all these wearables, all of these new biohacker tools, right? Things like continuous glucose monitoring and heart rate variability. Right. Are there other ways that we could measure this, Taylor, besides, you know, some of these biohacker wearables? Yeah. Yeah. By other than putting something on your arm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, th I think honestly, um, because we know so little about it now, that's probably the standard way that we're going to do it for the next five to 10 years, because mm -hmm. there's a lot that we have to learn. Um, but once we start to make those basic correlations, I think you can start looking at other things. Um, one great example of that, so uh, there's a, there are a number of different apps that are coming out now that use a camera plus machine learning to tell whether someone has fallen, whether they're at risk of falling, right? This is particularly useful in older adults. And, and um, there's, a, a, there's this uh, concept of uh, frailty index um, which is basically a measurement of, of your, your movement and your functional ability mm -hmm. uh, that you can start to measure with these external cameras. So I could see, um, and actually I just heard about something the other day. Um, there's a new type of device that I think it uses infrared so it can see through walls and you just stick it in your house and it kind of 
passively monitors your movement and gives you a sense for, for you know, whether there's a problem. Um, that right now it's really mostly used for fall detection, but I could see it, um, I could see that manifesting later. And so I think in addition to the wearables um, that, that I think we're very interested in because of the, the mm -hmm. ability to benchmark these things, yeah. um, there are what I call the unwearables. Um, and, and I think there's a whole movement around that. Yeah. Uh, so devices that you can have in your home. Um, another example of this is, uh, so my partner uh, for a long time, worked with a, a company that's developing a new type of Alzheimer's therapy based on a discovery at MIT, uh, that was probably eight or 10 years ago now. Um, and what they found is that if you could trigger the brain, um, the neurons in the brain to fire at a certain frequency, that um, it would trigger an immune response that would help clean up Alzheimer's plaques. Oh, and so they've developed this device that uses light and sound to be able to trigger that response, right? You're, you're essentially just firing those neurons at a certain frequency. And for early Alzheimer's, it seems to be very effective. So you could imagine having lights that work at a certain frequency or that, you know, maybe you, for an hour a day, you listen to music that's maybe a bit choppy, but it gets your brain firing <laughs> at a certain frequency. So I think as we, as we understand these things better, we're gonna have to baseline them with wearables first but I think unwearables will become a bigger and bigger category over time. That's cool. amazing. That is amazing. And it's life-changing because, you know, data is compelling to patients. So once they see something, even if it's unwearable, it really is compelling for lifestyle change. Yeah. W uh, one question, too. So we've had conversations with people, um, you know, around metabolic flexibility, and we kind of get this back and forth between sort of a, a muscle-centric approach to insulin resistance mm -hmm. versus kind of a fat-centric approach to insulin resistance. And so I'm wondering, you know, when you think about kind of the early triggering events, how do you think about those two camps and, and, and how they in interact, I guess? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, well, and, and I think in some sense, I, I'm, um, where, where would I put myself here? Uh, so I think I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of, of this. I, I don't have a, um, you know, my background is more with genetics, hormones, things like that. So I've, I'm still fairly new to the different camps. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I tend to start in the middle. Yeah. So I like to think of them more as signaling problems than as like, Oh, it started in the muscle or it started yeah. in the fat. Yeah. Um, my genetics background tells me that I'll bet that both things are happening in different segments of the population, right? Mm -hmm. If you, if you take, uh, if you take it that over 50% of human variation, uh, if you look at, you know, molecular variation and enzymes and things like that occurs at less than 1% frequency, mm -hmm. we have an incredibly outbred population. And when you look at, um, causes for disease. I think there was this, um, there was a dominant philosophy in the, uh, in the early 2000s, once they had sequenced the human genome, that there would be these, you know, for common diseases, we would find common genes. Uh, and what we found was exactly the opposite, that there were these common diseases that we had identified that actually had different molecular causes. Yeah. And so usually uh, when I get a question like this, I'm like, well, it's probably both. Sure. Oh, so yeah. That, right. <laughs> well, even a binary question right. is is kind of like alluding to what Chicken you're saying. Egg. It's like, right. oh, guess what? It turned out to be more complicated. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should have known. Yeah. We knew that. Probably we knew right. that. Right. 
and and, and the um, and my my take is that where you get where you can gain, I, I think about the signaling cascades as providing information. So what I'm really interested is in is measuring the right thing to give you the information content to tell you how to either modify your behavior or take a particular medication. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's um, you know I think there are. Yeah, if, there, if you want to die, we can unpack those those two camps a little more if you want. But um, that's sort of the framework that I Yeah, I mean, about. it's interesting. I, I tend to think the one thing that I've come to grab is like the, the muscle really seems to be a big uh, sink, a, good, mm-hmm. a big glucose sink. So I think when it comes to people trying to, you know, reduce weight and improve their overall metabolic flexibility, reduce their insulin resistance, gaining muscle, I think is probably really, really effective of just like lowering everything quickly. Um, as far as etiology, I, I, I agree. I think it's probably, you know, knowing the complexity of the body, both things happening at the same time. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't well, know much more than that, honestly. But Yeah, but based on what you just said, Michael, it kind of leads into the next question. Okay, so we know that there's this metabolic crisis out there. We know we can assess it. We know it's important. Now what do we do? Let's be part of the solution yeah. here. So is it yeah. just gaining muscle? Like, where do we start with this? Yeah, well, so I like to have you know, a couple of really basic things to recommend to folks. Um, they're, the basic things tend to be the easiest to implement. And so you can expect a step change. Um, they're not necessarily the most effective for everyone because that takes more work to figure out. Um, I think, you know, Casey and the team has done a really great job of dissecting what foods to eat, what foods not to eat, how to eat them in combination. So for instance, what we're seeing is that um, if you want to minimize your glucose spikes, right? If you eat chia seeds, let's say before you eat some carbs, or you go for a walk right after you eat um, to stimulate your muscle. To your point, right? You're going to minimize that glucose spike over time because you're helping your body uh, deal with the metabolism. And you know, and I, and I think the the reason for the chia seeds, as an example, is that you're stimulating multiple arms of metabolism at the same time, so you're not just pushing in carbs and that that enables your body to either potentially take in less of that sugar uh, or to metabolize it at a, at a rate that's not as high. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, I think so, so figuring out the right foods is really helpful and, and thinking about timing in terms of um, what foods you eat when and potentially when you do your exercise is really helpful. Uh, another one on the timing front that I really like is fasting. Um, one, the way that I think about it is when you fast for a period of time, you're essentially giving that complex signaling cascade a break and you're giving your body a chance to reset. And what we found from programs like Amada and Verda, I think the Verda folks were particularly focused on using fasting as a part of this, that you can see reversal of type 2 diabetes in certain situations simply by resetting those cascades. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is that um, even with the same amount of muscle, if you're, you know, building muscle, I think is certainly helpful. Um, but even with the same amount of muscle, if you can change the insulin sensitivity of that muscle yeah. by giving it a break from having to process all the glucose, uh, then you can see improved, def- improved response over time. Yeah. And so that's, that's another thing to think about in terms of exercise. I think to your point, um, large muscle group exercise seems to be really helpful high intensity exercise a couple times a week. Um, you also want to get the cardiovascular system going. And, you know, the traditional way to do that is, you know, 30 minutes every day. Um, what's been interesting is you're seeing a rise in things like breath work 
than where you do these sort of fast ins and outs. And that also seems to push the cardiovascular system. So I think it's, it's too early for us to know what the output is there, but that can be really helpful, I think, for, for regulating your cardiovascular system in general, which is really important um, and, and may also impact blood flow in the, in the uh, finer tissues. And then um, I'm, I'm forgetting what my third one is here. There's, I, I tend to do things in threes because it's easy for people to remember them. <laughs> right. right. I, I just forgot my third one. <laughs> Fasting and then exercise. Uh, oh, and then stress management. I was just gonna, and, yeah. and actually, um, breath work is is pretty good for that as well. Yeah. Um, meditation, breath work. I think what we find is high stress or chronic stress both uh, increases your your sort of average glucose. It it, it tends to um, have an impact on your um, metabolism pretty early. Uh, it also tends to impact inflammation in the ways that we talked about and the. The explanation that I think resonates with a lot of folks is that if you go into fight or flight mode, again, thinking about this, your body as a supply chain management system, you're expecting to get some bumps and bruises. You're expecting to get a potential, you know, puncture wound or something like that. So revving up that arm of the immune system can be really helpful for having the right response and making sure that, you know, if you do get bumps, bruises, or something worse, that your body can handle it. Um, but if you're, if you're pushing the immune system in that direction all the time, you're doing so at the expense of something. And that's the ability to fight certain viral infections, um, to monitor for cancer, as well as some of the other, you know, sort of typical chronic diseases that we see develop, things like arthritis, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so... That, I so mean, those are the three basic ones. Yeah, and I that breathwork part is super interesting as it relates to cardiovascular, the cardiovascular component. Um, I'm I'm really excited to, to hear that. I've not heard that before, yeah. especially since like having used to run. Now I've got broke knees. It's like now you I can do breathwork exactly, so I don't have to work on that. But well, I will also say that the level CGM really helped me to know how my blood sugar related to various foods. I was so say, yep, yep, that was so my other point. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're looking to see like. Because something spikes my blood sugar doesn't mean it's going to necessarily spike Michael's blood sugar. Right. So we would encourage you just to get a CGM from levels and, and kind of do those experiments yourself, which is super cool. Yeah, that 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 part of the self-discovery, the personalized and even, you know, I would call it biofeedback, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, around what you're yeah. eating and adjusting the, you know, thereof is so powerful. So that's part of the great work of levels. And so, you know, we already know that you guys are on the cutting edge as it relates to the metabolic health part of it and behavior change. But what's what's on the horizon? Like, what can we expect in the future? anything new exciting that uh you'd be uh willing to, to drop on the show and share with us <laughs> sure well it's, it's um i mean i think you know maybe spending a few minutes to expand on the point that you just made would be a great start because i think there's still a lot of rich um and and fertile territory there uh helping people just unpack how their responses um are in are are affecting how their glucose response to food, for instance, um, how their body is handling the particular behaviors that they're, that they're taking on or the, the ice cream that they're eating or whatever um, is impacting their health. I think there's still a lot to learn there. And there's, there's a, there are going to be a lot of ways that we can help people get what I call a better mirror uh, of that. So it's really being able to use um, right now, use your, your glucose to see, Oh, you know, that thing that I just ate is actually having a big impact on me. Or, you know, I, I know, like for me, um, 
it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't eat too many cereals, but there was one, I, I used to eat these uh, Barbara's whole oat things, right? Which were supposed to be heart healthy. And I had looked at the ingredients on the back. And for me, that spiked my sugar into like the 170s. Mm. Right? And I was just like, whoa, whoa. How, how is this possible? Might as well right? just have Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I mean, what in the world? Yeah, yeah. yeah. you're missing out yeah. all these years. Missed out. <laughs> yeah, I might as well eat a pop. Right. Barbara! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Whereas for me, ice cream doesn't really do that, or uh, a bowl of rice. Most of the time, I'm I'm fine with. Yeah. Um, but that's not true for everybody, yeah. right? And there are there's there are a whole like the you know the Southeast Asian genetics, and and in particular, I think you know there's been a lot of work recently on um, South Indian diets, and you know how there's there's a set there that that really impacts uh, diabetes. So you know the I getting back to that 50% of human variation occurs at less than 1% frequency. It's really important to get feedback on what you're doing. If you're, if you're going to improve your health over time and understand how the behavior that you undergo impacts you, I think having that personalized feedback is critical. And I would encourage everybody to try out levels and Mm -hmm. at, at least see it for yourself. I think within the first two weeks, I'd be surprised if you don't find something if you don't uncover something that's yeah. surprising to you. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, and, and I think we're right now we're really doubling down on helping people um, understand that and, and tease that apart. You know, one, one of the things that we're seeing is that, for instance, alcohol has a, a pretty big impact on um, sugar and uh, particularly sugar spikes post-eating. It's pretty common for somebody to, to drink a beer with dinner or have a glass of wine or something like that. And, you know, we've, we've had a few people write in and say, you know, I just had this super greasy, super sugary meal and, you know, drank like three bottles of beer and my sugar was totally stable. This thing doesn't work at all. Right. And what's important is for us to understand when the, you know, currently, if you're just looking at sugar, you're really only even looking at half of metabolism, right? Mm-hmm. You need to at least be looking at glucose and triglycerides mm-hmm. in some form, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's glycerol or free fatty acids or something like that. Right. And so it's possible to confound the metabolic score and, you know, our, our general measures um, by just sort of combining a couple of of bad things, uh-huh. so to speak, <laughs> quote. Uh, over time, we really hope to help people understand that and and to be able to provide better measurements of metabolism and that will you know i I think there are a couple of ways to do that um one is to involve more markers like you know looking at the triglyceride pathways looking at um we'd love to do lactate or insulin or um, uric acid is actually another really interesting Mm -hmm. one um, and then for things like stress and um, exercise and stuff like that, looking beyond that to um, cortisol, there's um, interestingly, you know, there's a lot of research around uh, community and, and one's feeling of social connectedness um, and, and longevity, right? So people that go to church, for instance, uh, in their later years are, you know, are more likely to live a longer life, mm-hmm. which is hard to understand. People with partners 
are likely to live a bit longer. Um, and there are ways that you can start to measure that. So oxytocin, for instance, we know is released in when people feel like they're part of a group or when they're volunteering and giving back or things like that. So there are some interesting ways that we can start to provide feedback, you know, extending that mirror beyond metabolism to how, how is your community life, right? How, what are your social connections like? Is that something that, that you might want to think about improving? So those are things that, you know, I don't think will necessarily be happening tomorrow, but there are things that are on the radar and that, um, you know, there are lots of ways to get feedback on that, right? If you think back to unwearables and cameras or mm -hmm. text message analysis, or there are a lot of different ways that you can get at things like community and social connection. Um, so I, I think you can you can look to that as an area that we might be interested in in the future as well. Fundamentally, I think what Levels is interested in is really helping you understand how your behaviors impact your health. Yeah. And this is where resilience is so key and, and core to that. Um, we're really looking at how your body prepares for and recovers from different demands on the system. Mm -hmm. um, and so preparing for social interactions might be releasing oxytocin as an example. And so <laughs> right. the, the type of oxytocin spike, the length of that spike might be able to tell you a lot. Um, so those are the types of things that I think um, levels will be interested in. And, and I, I think, you know, a big part of the reason that I'm talking about resilience and, and trying to get out there with this concept right now is that we feel that it's a great way to think about your health and that, you know, we, I, I think everybody wants to be healthy. Right, everyone, but but there's no great definition for what that is. Most of the metrics and markers that we've come up with are correlated with disease. They're correlated with diabetes or heart disease or Alzheimer's or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Alzheimer's we don't have too many great markers for, but we're going to continue to try to find them. Mm -hmm. Whereas we we are just really starting to think about markers that are correlated with overall health, and the fact that actually, if you promote health, you can actually prevent disease. And so I think this concept of resilience in, you know, maybe being able to recover from disease faster or better, right? Being able to recover from an all-nighter that you might have pulled, having more energy to spend with your kids. These are things that people really value. And, and, and that's where I think this, this concept of resilience is going and what we're trying to help people with is to live the life that they want, to have the health that they want. I love it. That was this perfect. Was a fascinating <clears throat> conversation. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. Dr. Taylor Sittler, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us. But before we let you go, we do have one last random question that I'm going to kick to Michael Chapman. Yeah, we have a the silly question ball. at the end of interviews that relates to nothing. And so um, my question for you is, do you have a favorite wild animal? <laughs> <laughs> um, what would be my favorite wild animal? I think, you know, it's got to be the pangolin. <laughs> oh. <laughs> My uh, my daughter got this book called Tales, mm -hmm. and it's got all these unusual animals in it. And she's been going around saying pangolin, yeah. pangolin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's currently my favorite wild. I know that book. I was just gonna say that, Michael. I'm sure you have this I've book just, at home. Yeah, the daddy tail or the monkeys pull the daddy tail. I know this book for sure. Totally. That's Amazing, it. great answer. Well, Taylor, it was awesome to meet you. We can't thank you enough for spending time, and hopefully, you'll agree to come on again soon. That sounds great. Thanks for having me. It was really fun talking with you all.
Man, that was so fun. I yeah. I could talk to him probably all day long. I feel like he does such a great job at not just understanding some of the you know more subtle biochemical uh, nuances within the pathways, but he but he keeps an eye on the big picture, which is the the general causes of disease, whether it's inflammation, mm-hmm. oxidative stress, insulin resistance, these sort of things. So it's um, just just really really great conversation. I yeah. think we're gonna have to have him on again. And, yeah, no doubt. And I will say. The pangolin answer was surprising. Pangolins are that kinda, was surprising. They're kind of creepy looking. You, they're scaly, like anteater looking things, right? They're interesting. They're not an animal yeah. that I think I would naturally like. It was a surprising answer when someone's yeah. like, "Not a lot of normal pangolin conversation happening on a daily basis." I, I don't will, think. I will say, it's a not surprising answer when you're speaking to someone who's like a visionary and just thinks differently than everyone else. So that sort of makes sense to me now. Look, honestly, mm-hmm. anything that is responsible for the death of ants, <laughs> including <laughs> eating them, is okay in my book. Why do you hate ants so viscerally? What's not to hate? <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, the world's most premier pangolin expert. How'd you get him so fast? Turns out he didn't have a lot going on. Mm. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net. So you said that you love pathologists. Uh Is that true? Yeah. What's what's the deal there? You you love a whole group (laughs) of... uh, Professions? Well, you know, I, I love ER docs the best, right? I've mentioned that several times on the show. But I also have this special place in my heart for pathologists and radiologists. That's that's a lot of people that you're just loving right away. <laughs> that's, well, a, that's three <laughs> categories. Like This is anti-personalized approach to love. I'm just saying, because working in the hospital, pathologists and radiologists are these nebulous entities that you never see, but we wait with bated breath on their report because it's life-changing. So they always just felt this like very nebulous, important thing. Kind of like a judge. Yeah. Only a judge you don't see. They should wear a big, long black robe. (laughs) 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 So ridiculous.